0: Let's go ahead and pray together. Holy God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for its sweetness and kindness. Even when also it's biting and painful, it is good. we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to hear all of it this morning. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an honor to be with you, bringing God's word to you this morning. We have been in a series for the past couple of weeks that we have called Wrapping Our Hearts Around What's Real. And kind of the the controlling image is this, that we all worship something. We all make something Kind of the, the central identifier of our lives, and so this image of taking our heart and kind of you know play it around this thing or that thing. Well, last week, and really the, the theme so far in Romans has been that we're bad at that. Most of the things that we wrap our hearts around are really, really bad for us. and even the things that aren't necessarily bad bad in and of themselves still somehow cannot, they can't hold up, they can't be the thing that is at the center of who we are. So we're going to continue this morning in the book of Romans as the Apostle Paul helps us understand what we should be wrapping our hearts around and what that does to and for us. Suzanne, would you come and read for us this
1: morning? A reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through chapter 2, verse 5. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them.
0: Now, I wanted to step in for a minute. I asked Suzanne to hold off for a second because I want to point something out. Those of you who might have this kind of memory and can reach back realize this actually was one of the things Jimmy preached on last week. And he specifically looked at that pronoun, they. And he talked about this idea that the they is universal. That even though we just went through a huge list of things that are broken, brokenness, things that we do, failures that we have, and this is just one of a number of different lists that exists in especially Paul's writings. The idea is that that's all of us. If you, if you don't find yourself in that list, it's okay. You'll find yourself in another one, but kind of we're all there. Now, Jimmy, again, emphasized this idea that the they is universal. But is that what it really means? Yes. Yes, it is. Don't worry. I am not taking the opportunity that our senior pastor has gone to contradict him. Don't worry. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Stay with me. But what I am doing, what I do wanna point out is that Jimmy's right in what is actually true. But there is a difference, or can be a difference, between what is actually true, how we're supposed to read a passage, and how we're gonna end up reading that passage. And today, we're gonna continue on past what Jimmy talked about last week in chapter one into chapter two, and I want you to feel something very, very specific, and it's why I've asked Suzanne to hold off. So, if you would, please finish for us.
1: Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: So, schizophrenic slides aside, I'm sorry about that. Um, Here's what I want you to see Paul's fun. Sometimes Paul... I would have loved to get to know Paul. Um, Sometimes we can think about biblical authors and just individuals in the Bible period as kind of just cardboard cutouts. Uh, They don't have personality. Paul has personality. Paul sometimes can be a little cheeky, and what he is doing here is very much that. So he sets up this idea, the they. And and it really takes the, the idea of this, right? Like, you ever... You ever listen to a news report or read a news article and you're like, man, people these days, like those, those people, that thing, or you hear a report maybe about another kid at your kid's school. And it's, man, they, whose mom or dad is that? There's this idea of, oh, we are just taken aback at what other people do. Now, obviously, right, there's, there's just a level of humanity to that that, you know, and even rightly, Sometimes we're shocked at what people do. But there can also be kind of this level of arrogance when we see that. It's superiority, don't we? We're like, oh yeah, man, those people. Whether we're actually saying it out loud or not, it's like, oh, I'm so glad my kid isn't like that or my marriage isn't like that or my church isn't like that. And and, and what Paul is doing here is he's kind of setting a trap. You see, uh, if you, you may or may not remember this, but the, the chapter and verse numbers that are found in your Bible, they are good things. Like, praise God that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a bunch of monks got together and decided it was really, really hard to find pages in this gigantic calfskin Bible thing that they had. And so they figure out a system to do something, but that wouldn't have been present originally. This wasn't a book. This was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, a church that did not really know him well. He did not plant it. He did not start it. If you remember the context Jimmy gave to us, this idea was that um, Paul had this deep heart for Spain, for the rest of Europe, and he desired to have kind of a launching point. He needed a church, a church like In Town, that, that, that we, you know, we have faithfully, hopefully, been trying to support missionaries and global partners and other people around the world, Paul needed a place like that. And so he was in some ways sending his resume. He was sending in the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, this idea of this is what the gospel is, and here's what I'm about. At the same time, he's also Paul. This wasn't some academic exercise for him. So he wanted to be able to say here's what I know about you guys. And here is the gospel. I want to go to Spain. I need you guys to be a healthy place to do it. So even though I want to show you what is generally my gospel presentation, what I think is true and core, also I want to speak into you guys' lives. I care about you. But he's a little cheeky. So even as he's saying this, you can imagine Eh, it probably wouldn't have been this many people, but imagine like fifty of your best friends gathered together with you in your house. Your house is packed out, and somebody, you know, gets to the best place to talk in your house. This would have been like what a church would have been like, and they pull out this letter and they're like, guys, Paul finally wrote us. And they pull out the letter and they start reading. And they're just reading. There's no expository thing going on. This isn't study. They're just reading. And so they read and they read through chapter one and you can get this idea, oh yeah, the they, oh, I hate those people. I hate those Roman guards or I hate those you know Jewish snobs or I hate that person and that person and that person. And then suddenly Paul, without warning, they wouldn't have just closed the letter and been like, oh great, At the end of chapter one, all right guys, it's a good time for a, a potty break or something. No, they would have launched straight through, oh, them, them, them. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges, because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, I mean, like like there really is that sense of, you know, I was with you, Paul. I was with you, Paul. I was, what? Read that passage again. Like what, what just happened here? And Paul is going to spend the next chapter here in chapter 2 dealing with not the thems, but the yous. Who are these yous? Who's Paul talking to? Well, again, as I said, context-wise, he's writing this to the church in Rome. So in some respects, the yous are Christians. Um, And even more specific than that, probably based on the context that we'll get into here in a second, Jewish Christians um, of which about half the Church of Rome was probably Jewish Christians. Rome was one of the—this um, almost seems, you know, counterintuitive, but Rome, Rome because of its kind of um, widespread urban feel, it was actually one of the safest places for Jews to go. So even after Rome starts persecuting Jews in other places— Rome the city, is probably one of the best places for Jews to go because it's it's like Atlanta. It's, you know, purple. It's a place that you've got lots of people from lots of different attitudes and lots of different ideas in. And so Paul writes this, and so he kind of begins to focus on this specific people group, these Jewish Christians, and then more kind of broadly, the Jewish people in general. And what Paul would say is that... um, his problem with with the Jews, really specifically in this point that he wants to address, is that they have this air of superiority, this moral and spiritual arrogance that holds them above and against others. And so whether that is the Jewish Christians who kind of carry that into the church and they kind of see themselves as first-tier Christians and all these other Gentile Christians are kind of, you know, the second-tier or whether it's just the Jewish people in general, they hold to this idea and it's dividing the church, it's dividing the world. Paul actually uses the chapter and goes into two kind of different flavors of this superiority. Uh, One of them is the superiority of the individual. Um, He deals with this in verse 17 and past, this idea that um, kind of that we're aware of, Phariseeism, if you will, that I am better than other people. He says this in verse 17 and following. But if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, and know that know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. If you're sure of yourself that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, ouch, uh, have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And he's going to continue on from the, to the end of the chapter saying, all of you people who think you are doing right, who are um, knowledgeable, who are spiritual, who've got it all together, you don't. It's this air they would have of, I have mastered this spiritual thing, this good work. And even if I'm a sinner, even if I'm dealing with stuff, I'm still better than all the other people. You know, Mike Dombrowski last week in our Culture and Christianity class shared this image that stuck with me. It's, it's kind of the spiritual version of the old bear joke. If you're camping and you see a bear, you do not have to be faster than your bear, than the bear. You only have to be faster than the other people you're camping with to get away from the bear, right? Well, in some respects, this view is the idea that you don't have to be super holy. You just have to be holier than the other people around you. And for the Jews, obviously, they were always going to be this. They're saying, you know, we're always the people of God. We're always, you know, we're not the we're not the offender. We're the offended. We're the victim. They're the oppressor. We're always going to be around people who, no matter how hard they try, can't be as good as we are. And to be honest, even without meaning to, I've already kind of hinted at the second one here, which is sort of the superiority of the collective. It's not just that I'm better, it's that we are better. And so even if I'm struggling with stuff, I'm still Jewish. I'm still one of God's people. And throughout the rest of really this chapter, chapter 2, verses 1, all the way through to 17, Paul unpacks this idea that just because of one's pedigree, because of one's background, because of the way you talk, or because of your cultural um, kind of, uh, your cultural baggage, your cultural ability, this does not somehow get you off a spiritual hook. For, you know, the, the kind of the, the crystallized version of this that, that hurts and is also so beautiful is found here in verses three and four. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul makes this argument that Yes, you, you have the pedigree and you know the law and you've got God's word and all of these things. Do you not get that those things were meant to make you not act like you're acting? They weren't meant as sort of a cover-all band-aid that says, because we've got them, we're good. What's weird, ironically, is that um, if you throw a different light on this, that actually is what's true about us in Christ. Like, we we believe that Jesus has died for us, and therefore there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from Christ. Later on, we're going to hear one of the most beautiful verses weeks from now in Romans chapter 8 that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set free those who are under the law of sin and death. That being said, if that attitude that says, you know, I'm good, God's got me, so I can kind of do whatever I want. You have that, you might not have that, (laughs) this sense of what God is actually doing in you and I. So who's Paul talking to? Paul's talking to Jews, he's talking to Jewish Christians. Side note though, while context is good, and I push my students all the time to say, you. Figure out who is this passage being written to? How does that play into it? How do we understand it? If you already consciously or unconsciously are doing the mental math that says, "Oh, good, Paul's writing to them over there," whoo, you are missing this passage. Okay. So this idea of moral, spiritual superiority, this lording over other people. How do we receive that? What's it mean for us as the church today? What's it mean for in town today? It's got me thinking of a couple of things I wanted to just kind of introduce to you, talk to you about. This is a guy who I've really, really benefited from reading. I've been chewing on his book for a long time. His name is Jonathan Haidt. Um, he wrote a, a bestseller called Coddling of the American Mind, which you see right there. Haidt is a moral psychologist, um, and what that means is that he studies how people put together their frameworks of what is right and wrong. Um, what he's, uh, that, that is kind of his subject of study. What he's kind of famous for is he was one of the first to discover, or at least start talking about and researching, what he called call-out culture, but what has come in um, kind of the media now to be called cancel culture. This idea that we can um, do something wrong, especially publicly, which social media, so everything's public now, and immediately there's this massive pile-on, and everyone has to join in kind of taking that person out of collective existence and perhaps all of their derivative works and and, and all of that. And this has happened lots of different places. Hite kind of researched especially how this began uh, largely on college campuses. Um, And so you're probably familiar with a lot of the verbiage of his research that actually has become very, very common Today, things like safe spaces or microaggressions, trigger warnings, virtue signaling, um, things I haven't put up there. Things like you know, being young people being called snowflakes or dealing with PTSD. All of these different things. Things that, in certain ways, are are not bad in and of themselves. It's language that comes out of a very therapeutic space, but has sort of been applied widely to everyone and what Haidt goes on to to study and to deal with is this idea that he believes that um, this concept of um, wanting to just kind of kill people, get people out of collective existence, is due to the fact that our society, and especially our young people, are becoming more and more fragile. He talks about fragility. By the way, though, pause. If again, your brain just said, oh yeah, yes, good, Steve, start talking about those snowflakes, talk about them over there, you are again missing (laughs) what we are talking about, okay? I just want to put that out there, equal opportunity offender here. height Height talks about this idea that what what has happened due to a number of different things, social media, news cycles, um, just... it's it's a lot, Um, is this idea that that our population has become more and more and more anxious, more and more and more fragile, so that we cannot handle adversity. We're not resilient in any way. He says what this has led to is this idea of a prestige economy. What he means by that is that if my self-identity and my self-worth is is broken, is really, really fragile, is really, really shaky, then to survive in my world, I have to be continually affirming of myself. And I have to get other people to affirm me as well. Yes, present among young people, but also all over our society. And what I love is he calls it the prestige economy because what he goes into is this idea that to get other people to like me and to affirm me and to get more and more for myself, I have to participate in the downgrading of other people. And so there's this sense in which, um, this is where that that idea of virtue signaling can often come from. If so-and-so, person A, has done something wrong and person B, rightly or wrongly, criticizes person A, for doing this said wrong thing then persons d to infinity have to also echo and jump on and magnify what person B rightly or wrongly said to also generate their own feelings of acceptance of morality of virtue of caring all of these things together and the collective response of that, again, whether right or wrong, is that person A, for whatever they've done, rightly or wrongly, feels the weight of a billion digital sledgehammers all at once. And so Height goes into this idea of the marketplace of ideals, that we are always perpetually, this, this isn't just, you know, a, a hashtag Me Too movement, or is isn't just... Uh, this political thing or that political thing. It's that everything is up for grabs. And we're always now negotiating this struggle of who am I and who are these other people and can my group be better than these other groups out there? And that means we have to continually be policing and redefining and reshaping and probably shrinking our group. And this is how polarization happens. Why am I talking about all of this? I'm talking about all of this because this is what I think. I, I think that what height, who is himself, a, he's a secular Jew, which actually I think makes some of his um, some of his critiques really, really helpful because he is largely a, a left leaning person himself, but nonetheless is able to critique, I think, both sides, and perhaps the left even more strongly than the right, and so there's this sense of, oh, th- this guy's onto something here. When I look at this, I see Romans 1 and 2. The big difference is that I think what Paul was largely accusing when he, when he was critiquing was this idea that Jews or Jewish people had a position of moral and spiritual superiority. They stood on this cultural identity that they had. And for them, it was largely immovable. It was one of the big, big differences, right, between largely pre-modern cultures and today. They knew who they were. And so they could sit there and look down on other people. I think today... Honestly, and I don't just see this about young people, I think this is all over all of us. We don't know who we are. We struggle deeply with a sense of self-identity and self-worth and self-meaning and self-value. And so we have to listen to hours upon hours and upon hours of talk radio that already reinforces the beliefs we already have, or we have to launch ourselves into social media discussions that we probably have no reason at all to actually participate in, or we you know, wear a certain thing or go to a certain thing or act a certain way, all to try to establish this identity that is more and more and more and more lost among us. And I think when we do this, what we are doing is we are trying to get back to a position of Romans 1 and 2. We want to be secure so that we can look down on all the other things that aren't secure. And to use heights framework here, basically what we're doing is saying, I have to actually be more divisive. I have to buy into even more a place where I have to define myself against other people and look down on other people and echo the horrible things other people have done. The they, 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 they that Paul talks about is the way of life. I think this is killing us. I think it's killing us, whether we're talking about Christians or not, I think it's killing our society. I think it's very much killing us. It, it, it imports this, this sense of division that goes so far beyond any single political or social discussion to the very stance of, we're not just talking about racial division. We're not just talking about generational division. We're not just talking about socioeconomic division. We're talking about the idea of division itself that says that actually, as much as we say dividing and disunity and stuff is a bad thing, we actually love it because it means that we can define ourselves by what we're not. I've been thinking. This is a further side side note. We're just traveling around a lot of side notes apparently this morning. Um, about one of those divisions that I'd like to talk about a little further, and it's the the socioeconomic one. I don't want to get into kind of socialism, political stuff, or anything like that, but, but I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, 1 Peter four 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. I'm really increasingly believing that we actually think this in our country, money covers a multitude of sins. Um, and I don't mean that just in like a, you know, put Elon Musk's picture here or something like that. What I actually kind of mean is this, that when I look back to this, I often think actually that that not only do I want to lump on all the bad stuff on other people, I'm also desperately afraid of being weak and of my weaknesses and my places of brokenness showing up and thus my places of weakness and my places of brokenness being the things that challenge the idea that I am superior, that I can look down on other people. And I point the finger at me just as much as anybody else, but I wonder how much we, especially in North Atlanta, especially even here at this church, we, we use our resources in an almost kind of anxious way to make sure nobody sees any of our faults, to make sure nobody knows what we're struggling with, to make sure no one sees how broken we are, that, that we, we pump so many of our resources into creating this, picture-perfect picture of ourselves and our families and our kids and our extended families and our work and our life and everything. It's exhausting. Okay, where's the gospel? I got to go somewhere from that. Heights answer, I realize I'm interacting with this book a lot. Please, uh, If you're interested in all of this, go check out a podcast. He's very, very wide-read and and likes to kind of give summaries of this online a lot. But his answer to all of this is actually what he calls anti-fragility. And it's a really helpful series of kind of therapeutic ideas about not catastrophizing things and about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's really good stuff. But I think, personally, that this is actually what Paul is saying, a gospel humility that says, what what Paul is critiquing here is not just some yelling at Jews or Jewish people, but it is saying the very idea that anyone would be morally, spiritually superior to others and would hold that over them is itself so antithetical to the gospel that it should not even have a whisper among you. Church in Rome and and church us today, we should never, never have a place that says we are better than the other people. The other people on this road in La Vista or the other people in the pew sitting next to you But the reason Paul gives is not just some hold hands, sing kumbaya, whatever thing. No, Paul is saying, do you not understand how bad you are? And do you not understand how awesome of a thing that is? Not awesome that you are bad, but awesome in the sense that if you know that the morality you have the spirituality you have, the relationship with God you have, the transformation he is doing in your life, if you know that the only reason you have any of that is because God loves you so much and so fiercely, it makes no rational sense in the world. If you know that, then you have no leg to stand on in criticizing anybody else. The only thing you're left with is a a savage love for them and a hope that God would show his love to them the way he has shown it to you and to me. I think what Paul does, when we embrace this gospel humility, I think it transforms all of our relationships. I think it points us upward to God. I, I think it lets us take that verse There in chapter 2, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And it's like, yes, God is kind to me, even though I suck. God, please, I repent to you. I love you. I know you're accepting my repentance with open arms. It makes me want to run to you. I mean, how often, even those of us who are Christians, do we do the Adam and Eve thing? where you know we start to feel far away from God because of our sin, and that makes us kind of embarrassed to be with God or be with God's people. So we end up kind of going farther away from God and more and more into our own sin. What Paul is saying is that the worse you realize you are, we actually get to use that as fuel to run closer and closer to God. I've heard it said once, the idea that the closer you get to a light source, the more detail you see. Instead of growing closer and closer and closer to God and seeing how much of a wretch we are and kind of running the other direction, gospel humility says, run to me. Good, you realize that you're even worse than you were yesterday, good. Let's work on that. Good. You understand my grace even more now. Good. You have even more of a heart for other people who are struggling with the same things. Good. And that means we also see gospel humility in this idea of of turning inward. I sound like a broken record. I'm sorry I say this. No, I'm not. I, I say this too much maybe on stage, but I believe in town at its best. I'm about to celebrate the end of my sixth year here, praise God. InTown's about to celebrate its 40th birthday here in October. And some of you have been around for most of it. At InTown's Best, when God has been incredibly gracious to us, it has not been because we were a place that looked healthy. It is not been because we were a place that looked like we had it all going on together. It is because we were a place who actually were comfortable telling each other how much we didn't have it all together. That we were a place that, that could have these hard conversations. That we were not participating in a marketplace of ideals and a prestige economy from within the church. But we could be a place that actually was I need to talk to you about what I'm struggling with. I need you to pray for me. I need help. I need resources. I I, I just need to sit and grieve and cry with somebody. And we could be a place that, almost an anti-prestige economy. Who's worst among you? Paul says it's him. I say it's me. Let's come together. I think a gospel humility drives us to this, that says, are you worried whether you belong at InTown or not? I promise you, you do. Are you worried that you don't have it all put together enough to talk to somebody else about Jesus or to sit in a Sunday school class and learn about the Bible, to teach each other about what God is saying to us? I promise you, you are not too screwed up for that. You are just the right amount of screwed up for that. And that makes us run to each other and to God. And then obviously I think that points us then just to other people. Again, we do not have a leg to stand on if we sit in the culture and say we're better than everyone else. Even saying our God is better than everyone else is something that we hold with the tenderest of love and care not because we don't believe our God is the only true and real and living God, but because we know we don't deserve to even be able to define him that way. We don't deserve to know him at all. And yet we do. And he's transforming us. And that fills us with a joy and a humility. It fills us with a commitment that allows us to not just go into evangelism with a, I'm gonna tell my friend once and if they don't agree with me, then you know, cancel them and move on. No, I get to commit to you for the next decade or two or three or the rest of my life because you're worth it. I get to trust that God's gonna do something in my kid's life when I wanna strangle them or when I am so broken because they've already left and I feel like I have failed. It allows us to move through this life with the heart of Jesus. I'm not tooting our horn about this. I just wanna connect some dots. Again, in town, not any better. But if you've seen the outside of our sanctuary, that's that's what we're trying to be about. We wanna be a place where these ideals, where the gospel has taken root not so we can show you shiny brochures with a mission statement on it that says we've got it all going, to, going on together well. We have a successful, thriving church. Come join us. Now, we want to say we have a successful, thriving church. And what ses- successful and thriving means is that we know that we shouldn't be in existence at all, and yet God loves us. And we know That we should not have good marriages and half the time they're not, but God loves us and other people love us. We know that we're really bad parents half the time, but God loves us. We know that we need to figure out how to take spirituality into our workplace and we fail so often, but God loves us. That is our song.